Open your Bible with me to 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. And I just sent the AV booth into a panic because they're thinking, wait, I thought the sermon was Psalm 51. Don't worry, we will end up in Psalm 51. That is our text for today. Several weeks ago, we discussed Psalm 14, and we read through it and studied through it together, and we saw how it proclaims that all have sinned, and no one does good, and everyone is completely dependent upon God for deliverance from sin, deliverance from the penalty of sin. And we know from the Scriptures that God has graciously provided that deliverance for us through the gospel, through his son and his son only, Jesus Christ. That those who repent and trust in Christ, Christ the one who died on the cross to pay for those wicked transgressions, that those who trust in him will be saved, will be forgiven, will be delivered from the eternal penalty of sin. But as long as we live in this body, we still wrestle with sin. And at times, we still stumble in it. You might be wondering, with how marvelous the Gospel is, does God really care if we still sin because He's already promised us eternal life through Jesus? Does He really care? Is it okay if we just continue on in sin? Well, in the words of the Apostle Paul, by no means. By no means is it a good thing for us to continue in sin. God absolutely cares. He cares that we set aside sin and pursue living a holy life. He takes sin very seriously. In fact, so seriously that throughout the Scripture, He commands us to put it away. In Romans 13, 14, it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God takes sin seriously and calls for us to put it away. And so we take sin seriously, seeking to put it away from all of our thoughts, our words, our actions, our motives, our desires, everything. But we still sin at times and so you might wonder well can i lose my salvation when i still sin god is holy and i'm to be holy as he is holy and there are times i'm not holy so does that mean i've lost my salvation well the emphatic answer from the bible is no nothing can separate you from the love of god in christ jesus no one can stop the good work that god has begun in you and no one can rip you from the hand of the father There is no one stronger than God who can take you away from Him. So we don't hop in and out of salvation. But as long as we are in these bodies, we will wage war with the passions of our flesh. In fact, we see the grief of this war being waged in the flesh from the Apostle Paul himself. In Romans 7, 18-19, he says... For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You hear that tension. 
in the life of a believer that I don't want to sin, but there are times that just I do, and I don't know why I do that. That's not my greatest love. Christ is my greatest love. But we still wrestle with it. So the question this morning is, what are we to do when we sin? What are we to do when we sin? Well, thankfully, Psalm 51 helps give us a model of what it looks like when someone who loves God has found himself transgressing God's ways. And it gives us kind of a description of where we go from there. Now, you might remember Psalm 51, and we'll get to it in a little bit. It is David's confession of his sin, but we need to back up because we know that that account comes from his fall, his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband. And so we find out in Second Samuel 11, the background to Psalm 51, that there was a time when David was king of Israel that he was Or he sent his armies out. It was a time of the year where armies usually went out and engaged in war. And often in those cultures, the king would lead the charge. But for some reason, he did not go with them this year. And at some point, he goes to the roof of his palace and he looks out. And his palace would have been higher than everyone else's abode. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba, a lady on her roof, roof bathing. And so in the stirs of his heart, he calls for her, for her and commits immorality with her. Now, she was married to a man by the name of Uriah, who was a faithful Israelite, who was out battle, in battle. He was out in the war, engaged in fighting, being faithful to his king, faithful to the Lord. And David sins against Uriah, sins against Bathsheba. He commits adultery, but it doesn't stop there. It comes to, they come to find out that Bathsheba is pregnant, and so he hatches this plan to try to cover up his sin by drawing Uriah back from the battle lines to be with his wife. But Uriah, being a faithful Jew, wanted to, knew that he should be out there with his brothers engaged in the war, and so he refused to go to his wife, and he goes back, and David realizes, well, that plan didn't work. He knows he's bound to be busted for what's happened. And so he hatches this plan that Uriah and a small garrison would push forward in the battle. And then at the right time, everyone would fall back from Uriah so that he would be standing alone against the enemy. And so that's what happens. And in the midst of that battle, Uriah is cut down. He dies. All because of the wicked plan that David had hatched. And so we see David's sin and After Uriah dies, he brings Bathsheba into his home and takes her as a wife, as if it's something honorable. You know, oh, Uriah was a great man. You know, I want to honor him, so I'm going to bring his wife into my home. Everyone would have thought, oh, what a great king. He loves his people and cares for them. Really, there's more going on than meets the eye. So he commits adultery at the minimum. He commits murder at the minimum. And interestingly, in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 22, the death penalty would have been required for him. But he's the king. No one's higher than the king. So he gets away with it. Or so he thinks. And so about a year later, as we find out at the end of 2 Samuel 11, that the child had been born. Bathsheba was living in the house of David. We come to 2 Samuel 12 and we see what happens. 
We see what happens. Look at 2 Samuel 12 with me. Let's read through this. Actually, we get the recap here from God's perspective at the end of 2 Samuel 11, where it says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's kind of one of those dun, dun, dun. What's going to happen next? And so we get to 2 Samuel 12 and we see the prophet Nathan come to David. Let's read first nine verses together. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, he gives him a story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor had, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children. And he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. The idea is this lamb was very precious to this poor man. Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. The idea is he took it and killed it and made it food. Verse 5, this is David's response to just this little short story. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Okay, What David does not realize, he just set himself up big time. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, David the king, okay, this is the king. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He's busted. The prophet exposes his sin. Obviously, this is the Lord working through the prophet and David, knowing it was wrong what had happened, condemns himself by his own words. David is that man who took a precious the precious wife of Uriah for himself, and he even killed Uriah to cover his sin up. Now, it doesn't end there, though, which is good news for us. Look at verse 13. After all this, and David is confronted, it leads to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord's rebuke through the prophet Nathan led to David's confession and repentance. There's no, I've sinned, but. He admits, I have sinned. I'm found out. I am busted. And so turning your Bibles to Psalm 51 with me. Psalm 51. We get to read of this confession. 
to read of David's confession here in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is what we call a penitential psalm, an expression of repentance. So let's read what that confession is. Psalm 51, it begins, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here's his confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my iniquities and blot out all. Hide your face from my sins, pardon me, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Here we read of David's confession of his sin, and it brings across this main point for us. Turning to God in confession is the proper response to our sin. Turning to God in confession is the proper response to our sin. Confession of sin is necessary for a relationship with God. And he's showing us here what true confession and repentance looks like. Now we can break this psalm up into five sections and we'll see them as we go through. But the first is verses 1 through 2. We see the cry for mercy. The cry for mercy, have mercy on me, O God, or be gracious to me, O God. Show favor towards me, favor that I, I don't deserve. This is a, a position of humility. David, he, he felt the overwhelming wave of guilt for his sin, and he was convicted of his sin. And instead of justifying his sins, as he'd been doing for the past year, he's now crushed as he comes face to face with them. He could no longer hide it in. Hide it. He could no longer keep it in. He could no longer hide it. His immediate plea, be gracious to me, God. Have, have mercy. Don't, don't give me the judgment that I actually know I really deserve and I have no right to demand your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. And so, please, 
please have mercy on me. In fact, have mercy on me, not because of something good within me, but, but according to your steadfast love. This term for steadfast love, you've probably heard this word before, is the Hebrew term chesed. Chesed, you got to clear your throat a little when you say it. But it can be translated several various ways because it's such a full term. Here we see it's defined as steadfast love. Other places, loving kindness. A loyal love, a faithful love. A love that is full of grace. So God shows faithfulness and kindness and goodness towards His people who really don't deserve it. And even when they are rebellious, His love is far greater In fact, we get this amazing description of God in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where Moses writes, as as the Lord passes before Moses, Moses writes this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin. This is the God who created everything and created everything perfectly and who is holy with not a single ounce of sin and takes sin so seriously that when man fell in the garden, it introduced death into creation. And so you would almost expect it's right that God would just bring judgment for sin. And yet He describes Himself as merciful, Gracious, slow to anger, faithful, forgiving. What an amazing God. An amazing God. You, you wonder, David should have known his Old Testament, his, his Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. You wonder if this passage was on his mind as he cried out for the mercy of God. And God showed love for David even after he rebelled. Because he didn't destroy him immediately. We too could come to the Lord for forgiveness and cleansing when we sin. Actually, we should come to Him, and I would go even further and say we must come to Him. There is no other source of forgiveness, no other source of cleansing but God. As we see in verse, verses 1 and 2, David admits his wrongdoing. He uses three terms that describe rebellion against God in their fullest. He calls them his transgressions. Transgressions refer to a willful and knowledgeable rebellion against God's law. Criminal acts against God. He calls them his iniquity. Iniquity refers to immoral behavior, a, a perversion of what is right, crooked ways, And those crooked ways bring a sense of guilt for our sin. And then he calls it that, his sin. Which is the idea of missing the mark. Not fulfilling the standards of God. Not being perfect as God has called us to be perfect. So he admits, I have broken the law. I have been perverse and I bear the guilt of that. And I haven't lived according to the ways you've called me to live. The idea here with all three terms being used is to give a full, comprehensive, all-encompassing expression of his sin. And notice, he doesn't just say blot out the transgressions, wash me from 
the iniquities, cleanse me from the sins. He uses the, the term my, my transgressions, my iniquities, my sin. He owns up to his wrongdoing. He's the only one to blame for it. He knew he was guilty. He knew he was dirty. He knew he was that he needed the stain of sin removed. He needed his wrongdoings erased. And it wasn't based on anything good within him. He couldn't say, well, you know, God, you said I was the man after your own heart. And so it gives me a little leeway here, right? He doesn't say that. He appeals to the only source of hope, and that is God's merciful nature. Just like for us, we appeal to God's merciful nature and He has displayed His, His nature, His will through His Son, Jesus Christ, by coming to die for our sins. So that when we sin, we still plead to Him. But what does David desire God to do? Well, he desires for God to deal with his sins out of mercy. He says, blot out my transgressions which means to erase them, erase them away. Interestingly, in Isaiah 43, verses, verse 25, it said, the Lord says this, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is the one who forgives. No one else, only God can forgive sins against Him. Which is a, Amazing thought when you consider if God is the only one who can forgive sins and you think about the gospel accounts where Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins. You see how Christ himself affirms his deity and why the religious leaders hated him so much. David says, wash me. Wash me from my iniquities. This is the idea of cleaning clothes. He wants that guilt and stain to be removed. He cries out, cleanse me, purify me so that I can now stand blameless. And he knows the only reason he can cry out to God for this is because God is full of loving kindness. When we, when we sin, do we turn to the Lord in recognition that we need His mercy? Is that where we go first? Do we turn to the Lord? We are absolutely dependent upon God if our sins are going to be washed away and we come recognizing that God is not obligated to forgive us, but in His faithfulness and His grace, He willingly does. Yet it is necessary that we come with humble confession. And that's what we see next in verses 3-6. through six. This is David's confession of sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Here's the reason why he's crying out to God for mercy. Because he knows that he has violated God's ways. He knows this. He recognizes finally his sin. He admits it, acknowledges it, and confesses it. And he says, my sin is before me. I can't seem to escape it. It's been a year. You think it would have you know, been fine by now, but I can't get away from it. It's with me wherever I go. It keeps coming up. You, you might have had that happen before. You know, you think of Maybe you were in a conversation with someone and you said something you shouldn't have or something sinful and you try to move on from it saying it's not really a big deal, but then it keeps coming up. 
And everything you see, everything you hear, brings that back to your mind. And conviction eats away at you on the inside until you realize there's not going to be any relief until you go to the person and confess what you've said and done and ask for their forgiveness. It eats away at us. This is the idea here with his sin being ever before him. And ultimately, he admits his sin is against God. Against you, you only have I sinned. All sin is treason against the king of the universe. But you might ask, well, wait. I mean, didn't David sin against others? Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against Uriah? I mean, if anyone, you know, Uriah, the guy he had murdered. Well, yes, he did. But... At the root of it, sin is sin because it's against God and His standard. And because God is the one who said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, we know that those things are wrong. God sets the standard. And so all sin at its most fundamental level is first and foremost against God. It's always against God. Even if other people are involved, it is ultimately against God. And because of it, it, we rightly deserve judgment because of our criminal acts against the King of Kings, against His law. And when God finds a sinner guilty, there is no possibility that God is wrong about that. Because the all-knowing, all-present, perfectly righteous one gives a perfect account of man's wrongdoing and he executes his justice with no corruption. You can't escape it. David knew He knew that before God, there was no way of justifying himself. True confession of sin does not try to justify itself. Confession does not try to justify sin. It does not say that dreaded line, I'm sorry, but... Once there is an excuse given... It's no longer truly genuine. It's no different than the blame shifting you see in the Garden of Eden. Well, it was the serpent. Well, it was the woman that you gave me. It's just blame shifting. It's not real confession. We see that David is crushed by his sin. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He recognizes, I am born a sinner. I am plagued by sin. Now he's not saying his sin is his mother's fault. What he is saying, he's recognizing that the impact of sin is so devastating that it's upon every man because we are born stained by depravity. We are naturally inclined toward pleasing ourselves, not God. And God would be right to execute immediate judgment. And God will bring judgment. That day will come. And if you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, the only thing you can expect is holy justice served against you. But God is also merciful. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I know we want to 
hide our sin at times because it is embarrassing and it's wrong. And we think we can just sweep it away. But actually there's life and hope and forgiveness and mercy when we just confess it and stop trying to justify it. God delights, we see in the person who inwardly and externally externally lives according to his ways. It says you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. But we are dependent upon God to give us his wisdom if we're going to know the true state of our heart. God must open our eyes to the truth if we're going to get a proper view of ourselves. And so confession is actually the result of the Lord giving us understanding of our wicked ways. It was an act of God's mercy to send Nathan the prophet to bring a rebuke to David. God didn't have to do that. He could have let David just continue on and wallowing in sin. But he did. The Lord graciously helps his people in their most devastating times. And sometimes he helps them by bringing discipline. Have you thought about your sin as being first and foremost against God? Even your sin against others is also against Him. If you have sinned, when you sin, we must come to God in humble confession. But not only did David long for his sins to be pardoned legally, he also desired God to purify him of his defiling ways. He desired God to restore him. And we see that in verses 7-12, through 12, our third section. We see a petition for renewal. The petition for renewal. John MacArthur has eloquently summarized this situation of David saying, quote, Sin had made him dirty and he wanted to be clean. Guilt had made him sick and he wanted to be well. Disobedience had made him lonely and he wanted to be reconciled. Rebellion had made him fearful and he wanted to be pardoned. End quote. He says, purge me, God, or purify me. Cleanse me from this stain of sin. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a leafy plant that priests would use to dip in water or blood and then sprinkle on something or people for an idea of ceremonial or for moral cleansing. And so this expression from David is a desire to be blameless and pure again. But notice, he's not going to the tabernacle for this cleansing. He's pleading with God for it. And that's because only God can cleanse the heart of man. Only God can cleanse the heart of man. So where do you run when you sin? You don't run to a priest. You run first and foremost to God. Only He can wash our sins away. David recognizes that the conviction he felt was brought on by God. In verse 8, let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He recognizes this comes from God. 
The child of God willfully submits to the Lord's hand of discipline and the consequences of sin. But even in the midst of such discipline, we can rejoice knowing that because of God's mercy and His, His, uh, because of the gospel, we are still right with God. We are forgiven of our iniquities and we can delight knowing that God does forgive us and even the discipline He brings is for our good. And so we can cry out like David in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Renew my heart. It's fascinating that actually the word create here in verse 10 is the same word in Genesis 1 when it says God created the heavens and the earth. Indicating that David recognizes he needs the all-powerful one who created the universe to do such a mighty work in him to make him pure and restore him, to put him in a position that lives a pleasing and pure life. It takes a work of God to do that. And he cries out, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. David, what he's referring to here is he did not want the Lord to cast him away as happened to King Saul before him. In the time of the theocratic kings of Israel, God would anoint them with His Spirit for service and authority. Now, this is not the same as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we see talked about in the New Testament and even in the New Covenant promises of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit does not leave His people. Instead, we are sealed by Him. But in the Old Testament times with the kings... The Spirit of the Lord would come upon them for service, for authority. And when King Saul rebelled against the Lord, over and over, you could say, the Lord rejected him and removed his spirit for service. And in turn, he anointed David. And here we we see David understanding the gravity of his sin and longing to not be rejected as Saul was. He he wants to continue serving the Lord, but he recognizes that it's not deserved. It's not a deserved position. And so he can't say, well, God, I'm king. You can't do anything about it. All he can say is, please be gracious to me. I know I failed. I messed up. And I'm wrong. And I want to turn from the sins. I want to be restored to you. And I want to keep serving you. But your will be done. And he longs for that joy of the salvation he has in the Lord. It is impossible to truly walk with joy in the Lord while holding on to unconfessed sin. Because sin brings nothing but death while the Lord brings life. And so they don't go together. They don't go together. And if you wonder, maybe you might wonder at times, why don't I have, why don't I seem to have joy? A good exercise for us is to ask, is there sin that I need to confess and repent of? Is there something that I'm hiding or holding on to that's robbing that joy? Our hope for restoration and renewal is found only in God. And when we indulge in evil ways, we must turn again to the Lord seeking relational cleansing. 
just as a child who sins against his parents ought to ask for forgiveness so that there might again be a sense of peace and harmony in the home, so the child of God who rebels ought to confess and repent to enjoy again the blessed relational peace that he has with God. But it doesn't stop there. We see the fourth part in verses 13 through 17. There's this resolve of repentance. The resolve of repentance. David turns with resolve to live in light of God's forgiveness. And he comes with what he'll say is a broken and contrite heart in verse 17. He has a, he has hope. As he's been humbled, he now has hope that God would forgive him, God would renew him, and he seeks to move forward delighting in God. He says, there's just a, a harsh change here, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinner, sinners will return to you. As, as easy as it is for us to get caught in wallowing in the pity of our sin, even when we think we are confessing and repenting of it, re- repentance doesn't stay there. We can get stuck there, but repentance doesn't stop there. Repentance does not just wallow in the pity of our sin. It instead, upon confession, turns in a Godward direction to think God, to praise God, to delight in God, and to serve God. It must move that way. And he, he says, you know, if, if sacrifices and burnt offerings were enough, I would have given that. I mean, this is the king of Israel. He was very wealthy. If anyone could have given as many animal sacrifices as possible to atone for his sin, you think it would be the king. But he acknowledges, I can't. I can't. They are worthless. That's not the prescription for the problem. The issue is the heart. The issue has always been the heart and will always be the heart. Now, the heart is the core of who we are. It's what we believe. It's what we love. It's what we desire. It's what we pursue. It's where our affections and our thoughts and our actions flow from. It's where something receives our devotion. And it influences every aspect of our lives so that we worship Whatever that is. Sacrifices as prescribed in the Old Testament were to flow from a heart of love and devotion to God. But if there was no love and devotion for God, then they were meaningless. They were pointless. They didn't matter. They're worthless. You know, the same is true for us. We see in Romans 12.1, our lives are to be a living sacrifice. God is to be the one we are consumed by, devoted to. He's the one who we live for. We live for His glory. We love Him. But if that's not the disposition of our hearts, the best of our acts are worthless, are in vain. We're just playing church. We're playing the Christian We must come with what he says here in verse 17, a broken and contrite heart when we sin. God will not despise that person. But what does it mean to have a broken and contrite heart? Well, these words mean to be crushed, to be destroyed, to be oppressed, to be devastated. So devastated by the wickedness of my sin that I want nothing to do with it anymore. 
Interestingly, these words are used here are passive. David didn't bring about the own, his own broken and contrite heart. Something brought that state about. And it's being confronted with God and His Word. It is God and His Word that brings man to a humble state and a heart that is brought low and convicted by failings to honor and obey God ought to respond by turning to God. This is not a, I'm just feeling bad for getting caught for my wrongdoings. I'm just feeling bad because of the earthly consequences for my sin. No, true repentance comes from the one who sees that their failings are with God. But God will not despise that person who turns to Him. In fact, Isaiah 57.15 says this. It's a sweet verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God does not cast away us when we come to Him in humility and confession. He does not disregard it or look at us with disdain of, okay, that was like the umpteenth time. I am so sick and tired of you. You just, you aren't getting it. I'm done. God doesn't do that to us. He is compassionate. He is near His children. He draws near to us. He restores us. He's with us even when we face the consequences of our sin. And He will take those consequences and even use it for good. But I find this fascinating. Verse 13, how it started. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I find it fascinating that repentance, our repentance, even benefits others. Our repentance even benefits others. I will then teach transgressors your way. Sinners will return to you. When we confess and repent of our sins, the Lord uses us as examples of His goodness of His forgiveness, of His grace. And then people can see in our lives the transformation that's taking place by the grace of God. And then they can be encouraged to confess and repent of their sins too. Which ought to cause us to stop and wonder when someone confesses that they are struggling with sin and they're trying to confess and turn from their sin, how do we treat them? Do we continue to hold their sin against them when the Lord has been so gracious to forgive them? Are we the authority? Or is God the one who pronounces whether they're cleansed and forgiven or not? Confession is to be even an encouragement for us to see God is at work here. And you know what? Look at the grace that God just showed my brother in Christ. I can do that too. I can confess my sins too. I don't want to live in sin anymore. It brings destruction. And I know God forgives. So I'm going to pursue that route. Well, he ends this psalm here in the last two verses. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. He concludes with the, the request for restoration. 
the request for restoration. This is a desire for restoration and good of all of God's people, not just him. Because remember, we are all tainted by sin. We are all plagued by sin. And so we need the good pleasure of God against or upon all of us. And he prays that God would do good to bless Zion, to bless his chosen people, to bless the place he has chosen to dwell. That he would have good pleasure towards them, that he would deal with them in a way that brings delight to him and sends his blessing to us. So that that blessing would be seen by hearts turning from sin and turning towards him. By worship not just being acts and motion and routine, but worship being from a heart that is overflowing with love for God. Because he first loved us. Turning to God in confession is the proper response to our sin. It is necessary for a relationship with God, not just upon repenting and trusting in Christ to be saved, but it's a part of the Christian life. We hate sin. We don't want to continue in sin. And if there's going to be a lasting change, we must have a humble heart that admits, I've wronged you, God, and I have no excuse for it. So we're back to our beginning question. What do we do when we sin? When we sin, we turn in confession to the merciful God. When we're burdened by sin, we don't try to justify it. We flee to the gracious one. We look to him. Just like the other Psalms we looked at, draw our gaze, our attention to look to God and to praise God, even in the depths of our terrible times where we sin, we are to look to God. Because He is the compassionate one who is willing to forgive. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? I pray you do. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are sinful people. Even us who have trusted in Christ must acknowledge that we're not perfect yet. We still stumble along the way. We still, at times, live for our pleasures and we rebel against You. But Lord, that does draw us to see that You are such a forgiving and gracious and patient God. You have known all of our sins, even the ones we haven't committed, and yet You still sent Your Son to die for us. You still reconciled us. You still redeemed us. Father, you know how deep our sin runs. You know us better than we we know ourselves. And so we thank you that we have Psalm 51, that you have given us your word here that points us to you, that points us to see we must humble ourselves. We must acknowledge and admit our sin. We must turn from it, but then we can delight in knowing the gospel is sufficient. 
that Christ's work on the cross has paid for all of our sins and that you do draw near to us. You forgive us and you walk with us every step of the way. Please grow us. May sin be found less and less within us and Christ-likeness be found more and more in us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.